Welcome to the MUFG APEC Insights Podcast. Most narratives in the energy transition space agree that an orderly systemic approach to achieve net zero carbon goals would be preferred. But while this seems possible in theory, it becomes much harder when put into practice. In this episode, Shiv Sivaraja, Head of Energy and Resources for Asia Pacific, Asan Coleman, Head of Emerging Markets Research for EMEA, and Michele Peduzzi, Head of Energy Coverage for EMEA, will discuss what an orderly transition actually means, whether it really matters, and how best to achieve our sustainability goals for the planet. The following podcast is for information purposes only. It is intended for professional investors and eligible counterparties and not for retail clients. Any content should not be regarded as an offer to conduct investment businesses or investment recommendations. Let's start with Asan to help us lay the foundation here. What is an orderly transition and what are the parameters that define what is possible? So the debate on net zero often seems to oppose an orderly transition to a disorderly one in a binary fashion. But orderliness is a relative notion. At the one end of the spectrum, instantaneous and abrupt action could jolt economies and societies, impair growth, and lead to public resentment and political backlash. At the other end, delayed or limited action could lead to runaway climate change, threaten the lives and livelihoods of billions of people, bring about massive population displacements, exacerbate political strife and contention, and result in a severe contraction of the world economy. Now, between these two undesirable extremes lies a range of measured and decisive actions that would enable a rapid ramp down of high carbon economic activities in tandem with a corresponding ramp up of low carbon ones, supported by a willingness to anticipate and address the social and economic consequences such a pivot will entail. Now, what determines the possible levels of orderliness at any given point is the amount of time left before runaway climate change takes hold and the degree to which the main requirements for such a transition have been met. Longer term, there are unassailable challenges with climate change. The IEA's net zero roadmap posits a future with no investment in new fossil fuel supply. That would be fine if that fossil fuel line bending down was mirrored perfectly by a zero carbon energy line rising to eclipse it. Theoretically sound, but impractical in reality. Whilst there is nothing in the laws of physics that says the world needs to run on fossil fuels, the reality is the global system remains highly dependent on them. As the ambition behind net zero gains momentum, fossil fuel producers are scaling back faster supply than demand is tailing off. This lies at the heart of the conundrum of an orderly and disorderly transition. The destination of an orderly transition lies a new stable system, but the journey that is the route between here and there looks to be a turbulent one. For us, if policymakers' objectives of a large-scale build-out and green infrastructure are to be met, Commodity prices will need to significantly overshoot the upside to provide the incentives for renewable investments to rise. From this, our conviction is resolute that the less popular fossil fuels become by greening the economy, the more they will cost as crimping supply without tackling demand, unlikely peaking until the 2030s, will only cause sharply higher and more volatile fossil fuel prices through renewed deficits and depleted inventories. However, we do not believe that fossil fuel prices will follow a linear lineup, but instead occur in a series of ever-increasing spikes, accentuated our supercycle thesis this decade. Put differently, in the 2000s, markets were bullish 
on commodity prices owing to demand from China. Now the structural bullishness is because of increasing demand from green projects and the green economy is the new China. With this, we believe a structural bull commodity market is emerging. So orderly sounds so much more reassuring than disorderly, but would a disorderly transition be such a terrible outcome? Or are there any advantages to disorder? Um, So if we take a big step back and look at humanity as a whole, we as humans have progressed in a disorderly and chaotic manner in almost every aspect since the very beginning. In fact, the closest we have come to global orders are typically under the rule of empires, and even then there is a limit as to what they can control. All the consensus-driven orderly projects of scale, for instance, the United Nations, have been very noble in their aspiration, successful in part, but ultimately, ultimately flawed. And the flaw is that aligning interests across several stakeholders is challenging without either a formidable stick or an irresistible carrot or maybe both. Now, what has proven successful outside of a highly centralized control is allowing for a fair playing field and competition. So rewarding those who genuinely provide value and productivity. This is the way a lot of human progress has actually been made. Now, this means accepting losers as a natural part of the process of evolution and development and encouraging risk-taking. And that means meritocracy, justice and incentives are key. Now to Aysen's latter points, I heard a top energy consultant say that the current energy crisis is a function of underinvestment in renewables to date. His view was that instead of attacking fossil fuels, we should be driving renewables and let the market decide. So his view ultimately is that the superior technology and cost competitiveness combined with social pressure will lead to the decline of fossil fuels anyway. So stop spending so much time criticizing them and just spend time on getting to that stage with the renewables. Now, I don't fully agree with him, particularly when I consider emerging markets, but he makes an interesting point about where our efforts should be focused. Right, but Isan also mentioned the IEA roadmap and you, uh, Shiv, have previously spoken about your skepticism around targets Uh, Which are important functions on orderly list? Maybe you can elaborate. Yeah, and and I should be clear, it's more prediction than targets that I have an issue with. But but let, let me clarify that. There are net zero pathways being touted, which are highly conditional on numerous important variables. For instance, there are assumptions that certain clean technologies will be available at scale by certain dates. And that effectively, the whole pathway is contingent on that. And for me, and I don't think this is a controversial statement, but prediction is basically a parlor game when it comes to any highly complex and high variable scenarios. And that's not just climate related, that's just the way it is. Um, Now, having said all of that, I do like targets. Targets are important as people need something to aim for. It helps to concentrate and align efforts and targets ultimately are set using some level of prediction. So I'm not completely dismissing the value of targets, even if they're difficult to verify. Right. Thanks, Shiv. Let's switch over to Michele now. Uh, Michele, what are your views on a disorderly transition and its wider implications? Arguably, there is a risk that late and uncoordinated policy shifts will leave companies and consumers with little time to adapt and that will cause disruption. This will also leave less time to develop the necessary green projects 
and make it more difficult for the financial sector to provide funding. Emission reductions may have to increase rapidly, and instead of experiencing a smooth transition to net zero, we would risk a rather chaotic transition. A disorderly transition would hit very hard carbon-intensive sectors. Millions of jobs could be lost in a short amount of time. Other related industries would also be heavily impacted. As we have observed in other industrial revolutions in the past, entire industries may disappear if their business models are incompatible with the new reality. But a disorderly transition will have far-reaching social and economic implications, I think. Too much pressure on investors to divest from fossil fuel may result in supply constraints, more instability on energy prices, and more importantly, a reduction in energy security, which may create even more geopolitical risks. Disruptions in one sector can quickly spread across the entire economy and trigger political intervention, as it was the case during the financial crisis in 2008. We have to bear in mind, though, that whilst a disorderly transition could come with high economic costs, it will also create new opportunities across sectors and geographies, for example, in the form of new markets for low emissions products and support services. Thanks, Michele. You also mentioned uh, energy security, which is a big topic right now, given the current conflict in Ukraine. How is this going to affect the transition? Well, Heather, um, the conflict in Ukraine and the disappearance of Russian commodities from global market could materially contribute to a disorderly transition. Countries, even inside the same economic area such as Europe, have very different positions with regards to sources of energy. Think of Germany and Italy, for example. Italy imports almost all of its gas, with about 40% coming from Russia. And this is similar for Germany. Without Russian gas, these countries have to rethink their energy strategies. And is going back to coal a viable option? Maybe. Uh, that could be better than switching off the lights. But if coal prices continue to raise, renewables may become more competitive. LNG could be an alternative in some cases too. But for example, there are only few LNG terminals in Italy, and these projects take years to plan, raise funding, and be built. All right. Thanks, Michele. Um, going back to ASAN, what are the alternatives to fossil fuels that can realize an orderly transition? So some 81% of the world's primary energy supply comes from oil, gas, and coal, according to the IEA's estimates for 2019. Now, the remaining 19% can be categorized as non-fossil, but 17 percentage points of this comes from only three sources, nuclear, hydropower, and biomass, which are hard to scale and the economics is unviable at the current juncture. In coming years, decommissioning of nuclear facilities will likely outweigh the construction of new ones. Two-thirds of the world's longest rivers already have dams in them, and biomass often competes with food production for arable land. Scalable renewables, wind and solar, make up just 1.5% of primary energy supply on IEA data. Now, this is a modest share, of course, which means that, at least for now, growth in energy demand still translates into growth in oil and gas demand. All in, absence a step up in targeted government measures, oil and gas demand is still likely to grow for the rest of the decade at a slower rate than in the past, but growth nonetheless. However, with investment scaled back substantially already, this builds tensions in the long-term outlook for oil and gas prices. That's interesting that you mentioned government measures, though. 
Schiff, you've made a defense of disorderly based on precedent economic models and, you know, and based on competition. But even in those existing free market economic success stories, the government has typically played a role, hasn't, hasn't it? And they have brought a degree of order, if you will. Oh, absolutely, Heather. No, that, that, that's a very fair point. And a great example of that is the original space programs of the USA and the former Soviet Union in the 1950s and 60s, which are today underpinning commercial spaceflight. So, you know, as Asan and Michele mentioned earlier, um, and I think we're all in agreement on this, we're on something of a spectrum. You can't have too much disorder. You can't have too much order. We need a Goldilocks amount of orderliness and disorderly market evolution. And governments have the unenviable task of trying to find that balance. The big issue with embracing disorderly is related to time. Can we afford to let the market do its thing, considering, as Asen pointed out up front, we are on a time limit? Being conscious we are on a global time limit is something new to humanity. In many ways, it is a blessing to be on notice, but it also lays a heavy burden on all of us. I also fear the risk of leaving behind the truly emerging markets. And obviously, in our part of the world, in Asia Pacific, there are some, some developing countries which uh, really uh, need a bit more time to catch up. Uh, as great as recent human development has been, and while some positive effects have managed to reach nearly every human, it would be completely false to suggest that everyone has been lifted to an adequate or appropriate level, even in countries with supposedly efficient free market systems. So this is something which I'm particularly sensitive about. You mentioned the space programs as a success story of, of uh, government intervention and orderly progress. Uh, could you perhaps expand on how and where government should play a role in? Yeah. So uh, to my mind, government um, also have a key role to play in taking risk where the private markets won't take risk. For instance, in backstopping emerging demand for hydrogen and ensuring the creation of infrastructure to incentivize hydrogen producers to make investment decisions, as an example. Um, now, this is not too dissimilar to the role governments played in creating road and highway systems in many countries, which of course support the automotive and the oil industries, which are often private industries, among many others, as it facilitates commerce generally in any country. One other issue I have is that the current marketplace is not pricing the externality of carbon which has created a false market in which the consumer is not paying the real cost for his or her products. So government has a role in correcting for that via carbon taxes and prices. And a similarity can be drawn to the high taxes on cigarettes in countries like the UK and Singapore, which in turn help fund uh, healthcare costs. Policymakers should also stop the market moving backwards, um, especially when the short-term economic temptation is high, for instance, moving back into dirty fuels, and Michele earlier mentioned uh, coal as a risk. Um, and the development of carbon pricing is one of the most effective tools available uh, to that end. Right. Thanks, Shiv. Uh, going back to Michele, though, um, let's turn our attention to the financial sector. What do you think is the role of banks in a disorderly transition, and can they help minimize the damage? That is a very good question. The financial sector will have to play a very important role in the energy revolution by funding trillions of dollars of new projects necessary to achieve the Paris targets and injecting liquidity to support the movement of commodities globally. But a disorderly transition would present material economic challenges. 
the industry as well as the financial sector would have little time to adapt to market changes by adjusting their portfolios and activities. Transition shocks could emerge as the global economy moves away from industries reliant on more traditional sources of energy, such as coal. Banks could incur losses on exposures to companies with business models which are not built around the economics of the energy transition. Risks can materialize, especially if the shift to a low carbon economy is very abrupt as a consequence of prior inaction. The introduction of economic drivers, such as mechanisms to establish an effective carbon price, are an important step to contribute to the stability of financial markets. Other changes will likely require the introduction of new economic policies and regulations that affect not only the supply side, but it will also lead to demand destruction for carbon intensive goods. And I also think that as with many rapid changes to the economic system, uh, there will be winners and losers. Companies and banks will have to continue to work hand in hand in order to get the finance world ready. And that is already happening through a variety of working groups where banks, sector players, and purposely created task force initiatives are collaborating to define how to create the sustainable markets of the future and how they should look like. All right. Thanks, Michele. Uh, going back to Shiv, uh, any thoughts from you on the role of other stakeholders, you know, like corporations and the consumer, for example? Yeah, sure. So there is a philosophical debate happening within the banking community as to what the correct role of debt is versus equity in government. Um, bank debt typically like certainty. Certainty means proven technology. It means strong established markets and it means well-established players. And you're not always going to get all three of those things or maybe any of those things in the new clean energy space. Now, equity likes returns and equity has an appetite for risk, but not blind risk. Government backstopping of risk, therefore, is so critical to ensuring the transition works and that we don't end up in a paralysis where all the other stakeholders are waiting for someone else to make a first step. Society, if we think of other stakeholders beyond the government, society has a role in that it can put sufficient pressure on corporates to ensure that they see sustainable investment as more than just another cost, but also a license to operate. And we're already seeing that in the European Union. Um, and then, of course, key to all of this is technology innovation. And while we expect major technology innovation in certain technologies to be led from the traditional leaders, and, you know, example of those would be universities and companies in the United States or Japan, there will also be some tailored innovation from other sources. For instance, don't be surprised if electric bike technology is led from Southeast Asia, where it is a far more relevant form of transport than, say, in, in the UK. Finally, I have to say something about oil and gas companies, of course. They will be key partners as they bring experience, they bring funding, they bring mega project management, engineering, innovation, uh, multi-stakeholder liaison skills, and of course, the all-important government liaison skills. So oil and gas companies have a whole breadth of knowledge and technical understanding, which is going to be so critical as we go forward into these new energy systems. All right. Thanks for that, Shiv. Um, I'm going to go back to Michele, um, just to get another perspective. Uh, you mentioned earlier that a structural change to the economic system would create winners and losers. Do you think this will be the case in a disorderly transition scenario? And who would fall in each of these categories? Um, I will try to answer this. In a nutshell, 
those who are in the driving seat and recognize opportunities created by a disorderly and disruptive transition will likely be winners. These will be energy companies with the right setup, financial firepower, leadership, and ambition to invest in the decarbonization of the sector. I would also think that energy commodity traders could well be winners in a disorderly transition. Volatility creates opportunities after all, but also the need for financial support as we've seen recently with higher commodity prices come also higher margin costs and pressure on liquidity increases materially. On the other hand, those playing a chop, sitting in the passenger seat to continue my earlier analogy, will likely be the losers. Being the first mover will be an advantage. There are going to be plenty of opportunities for businesses over and above renewable energy, from EV charging networks to carbon capture and storage, and even hydrogen. We are experiencing a new kind of industrial revolution and leaders across the whole energy sector are transforming their businesses to become part of the new net zero future and at the same time to avoid being adversely impacted by it. All right, sounds like we prefer orderly, but we need not necessarily fear the disorderly within reason. Uh, perhaps as orderly as possible is the pragmatic compromise we should be aiming for. Uh, what's not to doubt is that whatever the means we have to achieve our sustainability goals. And with that, gentlemen, thank you all for your time and we'll see you in the next one. Take care. Thank you for listening to the MUFG APEC Insights podcast. This episode is available on Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify. Rate, review, and subscribe, and reach out to an MUFG sales representative for business inquiries.